Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Well, I, <laughs> I've done it again, folks. I, I've pulled a person out of the billions of people on this planet and said, let's talk. I want to record it. You're fascinating. I met Tyler Zabriskie, Zabriskie, uh, on uh, one of those many wonderful Zoom conferences that have kept us all feeling like we're in the world in the last couple of years, and some of us actually in the world. But uh, it was the Center for Purposeful Leadership that put out something that attracted my imagination and I, I signed up for it. Well, I think it was free. That always tends to make the, the threshold lower for me. But in the very early part of the session, there was a breakout and it was supposed to be three. I think it turned out to be two, Tyler's and me. And you've got, you're in a, like a pressure cooker, you know, they, the, the, the clock's running. And they say, here's a powerful question you must answer with each other and be ready to report out. And we just started to say, hey, you're a neat guy. I'd like to get to know you. And before we know it, the time was up and we didn't get the answer to the powerful question. So with that failure, <laughs> we agreed that we would uh, meet. They wanted us to meet uh, between sessions so the, that we would and they were very serious about it, that we would uh, develop more of a sense of the answer to whatever that question may have been. And so we are, we're meeting, but not as homework. It, I think it's because there's something about Tyler that even in that few minutes, I thought, now there is a person who understands the joy of organization development work, the joyful aspect of it. And he is an, what we call an OD practitioner and an executive coach. So Tyler, what was your memory of that breakout room? Were we really <laughs> failures at, at our assignment? <laughs> oh, David, my memory was, was the, the sparkle, uh, your sparkle <laughs> um, was, um, I think it was kind of asking a question about what what's alive for us in the moment uh, in terms yeah. of our freedom and our accountability to uh, a deeper sense of purpose. And um, mm -hmm. I think I, I I was intrigued by the way you shared your experience of Peter Vale and how it triggered uh, a, a major transformation and how you understood your how you would live life after have after a career of teaching and that's right it it sparked in me a question that i've been um struggling with for a long time of well what what is the purpose of all these things i've been learning you know i think for so much of my life i've kind of felt like oh i'm learning things that will eventually come to of some broader value some use some mm -hmm. some insight or wisdom to share and so I'm I'm in this strange place where I've often had clients, coaching clients or consulting clients say, gosh, you know, do you write something? I'd like to read, you know, your reflections on things. And yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And I and I haven't. Um, I, it, it, uh, I, there, there's a block about. Yeah. 
about finding ways to convey it. Uh, it, it for me, it comes alive in talking with one person or talking with a, a group in a retreat. Uh, I just love the kind of engagement yeah. of people's questions, their inquiry, the opportunity of, of being present soulfully present with other people. I, it's, just, mm-hmm. it's thrilling, but I somehow don't know how to do that to an abstract audience. And so, yeah. so I, I haven't. Yeah. I remember we, that we did, we did catch that, that, uh, that last wave before the, we hit the beach and, uh, and you speak for tens of thousands, probably a very smart, very engageable people in the large, large uh, tent called organization work, organization behavior, organization development, organization design. You know, we throw a lot of uh, hooks off of organization, but the the essence of it is that we have an opportunity to be concerned about the organizational life of a person or group. And with that concern, we will listen and they then will want us to tell them what we know in the appropriate way. So it's a give and take and it's different in every setting. Mm -hmm. So those of us who are variety junkies, Mm -hmm. it's a great life, right? But because we're variety junkies, the next gig comes along before we sit at that keyboard with the blank screen (laughs) and we're ready to start putting out the, great book that's always been in us and there's another engagement and another coaching session and another thing to read and another really interesting zoom conference to attend Mm -hmm. and someday it'll come the time will come well is that a fair thing to say to you? <laughs> oh, <someday>? absolutely. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've worked on, on six or seven continents and lived in, lived in the Congo and lived in Cambodia and many parts of the U S and I, uh, I, I get, I get a rush from, you know, the new learning curve of a new individual, someone from a different generation, a different culture, a different challenge in life, a different sector. And, um, so the the you know it just sparks my curiosity to understand yeah. how, what's it like to live your life and is yeah. there any parallel is there something I can learn from what you see from your perspective on reality? Yeah, well, I I understand the the that feeling of I I'm blocked and I want to write, mm-hmm. but I had a conversation recorded this morning with Scott Allen, who is uh, an academic in in our in my field very smart young man who's got a wonderful podcast called Pronesis. And he concentrates that podcast on conversations with people in leadership, either studying it, writing about it or doing it. Mm -hmm. And so this morning's conversation was podcaster to podcaster. Why are two of us with all the credentials and all the letters behind our names doing podcasting when there is more in quotes serious work that academics are supposed to be doing like writing articles for journals and and sometimes books even though higher ed doesn't tend in our field doesn't tend to value books as much as they do writing in a a very difficult journal uh we're cynically i would say very few people will will read what we've written (laughs) so that's my point to you that um 
if there were a way to be generously involved in putting together some of the things that you've learned over time, Tyler, in some format that you're sure would be read or seen by others, I think it would come quite easily. But what tends to have happened is the book itself has now become, uh, I think, somewhat of a obstacle. And here's what I mean. Mm -hmm. Self-publishing now is is quite easy. It's expensive mm -hmm. and time-consuming, and you get your book up on Amazon, like my, my good friend Steve has just done. Mm -hmm. But there's so many others up there mm -hmm. with so many interesting titles. It's likely not to be read much more than that obscure journal article. Yeah. So that's the that's the tangible paper book. My book on on practice as a way of being is digital. Mm -hmm. And so that's even harder for people to get their head around because mm -hmm. we still call it a book, but when you look at it on your screen, it's not an ebook per se, it's digital. I can a, I can manipulate, I'm adding features to mm -hmm. the chapters, audio features and I'm linking some of Peter's articles to them. So it's it's very different. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't for that freedom, this is a word we used just in this meeting that we had attended together. If it wasn't for the freedom, uh, freedom of being able to write with Peter's book in that very creative environment mm -hmm. where I could put out a page and I would get almost instant copy editing and instant feedback from my editor, and we could change it on the spot, mm -hmm. page by page. Yeah. That was fun. That was thrilling. That was my learning process mm -hmm. in writing that book. It wasn't a lonely exercise where you write and write and write, and you ship something off, and you may get some feedback, and eventually you might see some galleys if there's a real publisher left out there for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who wants new, new authors. And then it would take weeks and months and perhaps the book would never get out, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's the book can be book itself is getting something into the hands and minds of people mm -hmm. so they can sit and think and concentrate. Mm -hmm. Sorry for my speech, but I feel for what you're saying, because there's so many smart, well-informed, wonderfully traveled people who would love to, have a chance to have someone sit with their thoughts and think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to get those to that point. Yeah, right. Well, and you did it by finding a conversation partner. Yes. Who had uh, obviously a deep relationship and a shared background. Um, yeah. Which sounds lovely. Yeah. Partnerships work. I mean, I've um, the only only other two books that my name is on are both collaboratively done because mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't have enough that I know <laughs> alone mm -hmm. to make, you know, my, to satisfy my desire to put something out there in people's hands. I like to be connected with people who have additional ideas, complementary ideas, even different ideas. And uh, that model seems to work pretty well. Have you, have you ever thought of co-writing with not, I'm not asking to co-write with me because I'm 80 and I don't want to write. <laughs> I just want to talk and listen, but um, you have thought um, of collaborating I, with I have, I have uh, thought of it, but never, never seriously explored it. Um, because I, I guess I haven't had a sense of who I would want to partner with about what subject. 
Yeah. I, mean, I think part of the power of, of, uh, of a, a partnership, a collaborative writing project that's appealing is that I find um, that my best ideas come out because they're evoked by the, the, the longing or the presence of, of someone else. It's in conversation that it comes out. And I'm, I, you know, I, I sort of surprise myself every day. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> because it's in, it's, it's in the human interaction that I feel inspired. I remember stories. It's the intuitive uh, process. At least that's, that's the main way it happens for me. Oh, well, I, I, the good news there that I'm hearing is that that's the way it happens for most human beings. Mm. And, and that's why I love it. It's natural. Mm-hmm. It's the way that people learn about each other, learn with each other, uh, figure out how they're going to get across the, the, the gap. All those things come from people who are comfortable enough and make others comfortable enough so you can, you can talk it through. Yeah. And, yeah. Sadly, because of the pandemic and our isolation, and what I'm reading in terms of trends is that that has somewhat been lost, that opportunity to be with someone in the moment, present, and then have those kind of rich conversations. But if you take it to the level that you have, you put yourself as a person in these conversations with in a coaching role or in a, a consulting role or however you are. That's really a high wire act. It's risky in a, in a nice way. It's risky because what if you are in a, in that moment and some of your natural insights don't come rolling right up there when you need them. Right. Right. Have you had any of those moments? (laughs) Oh, sure. I I think those moments come when, um, particularly if I'm in a conflictual situation, if I'm working with, an organization where it's an executive team and perhaps there's the, there's a board and a CEO and a, and a, and a person who's bringing a project. And so you're dealing simultaneously with multiple levels and departments mm-hmm. in the organization mm-hmm. and those interests don't always converge. No. Uh, and so, so especially when you're doing multi multiple day retreats with multiple parties, I've occasionally consulted with consortia of different organizations, you know, 10 and more organizations are in the room multiple CEOs, multiple board chairs. Um, and then the, the, the reason to have brought me there is not shared. Uh, <laughs> and, and so it's very difficult to speak to the dynamic in the room without getting caught uh, or used mm-hmm. in, as, an, as, a, uh, as a player in their competition. Wow. And, yeah. and you know, I, I think really any any executive team, you're, you're going to have, uh, you know, accomplished people with often sizable egos mm-hmm. who, who um, you know, can be so engrossed in the need to demonstrate that they're right or that they're valuable or that they are worthy of respect and position and compensation that you can have a very polite conversation above the table and a knife fight going on underneath. Yeah. And, and so how do you help? folks that live in that reality and the fear that that generates the the lack of safety um the you know the subtle ways that that one can be humiliated by others <laughs> yeah you know, um and and how do you engage in that in in such a way that you create a sense of safety uh 
and mutual confidence, not only with me as a facilitator, a space where they can speak from their heart, mm -hmm. but also um, some willingness to trust one another well enough to trust that there's not going to be some kind of sabotage or retaliation for saying something that wasn't um, entirely welcome. Yeah, or scripted. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that that is a, a, a an elegant definition of where the courageous organization facilitator, consultant, practitioner is when they're doing their best work. Mm -hmm. It's it's in those moments of where the trust the trusting is variegated, mm -hmm. and you have to bring your presence in in a sense. Not so much as a neutral party, because I think that's a bit of a myth, but you have to be in there believing in trust. Yeah, right. Above everything else. Yeah. Believing that it can come. Because if you're wavering, then, I mean, you don't have to put that into words. They'll sense it. So you, you're in the middle of this uh, apex of the situation, and they're reading, can we trust this guy, sure. uh, Tyler? Can we trust, you know? But when it happens, the trust trust moments occur, whether it's an hour or, or weekend retreat or whenever. Mm -hmm. How does it feel when it succeeds? Oh, oh it's magical. It, um, <laughs> there's, I, I, I think about it as, an, as when it happens, there is an interweaving of my own story and the story in the culture. There is a... Um, kind of a shared stretch into can I be courageous enough, honest enough, vulnerable enough to be present in the moment and yet still aligned with what they need to speak to, you know, not, not indulging my own need to, you know, kind of tell my story here, but, yeah. but to find a point of connection between what is courageous and soulful for me and what does the group need to explore? What do they need to speak to that has been forbidden? Right. And then and so when it, the common cause is that we've got to break through. We can't continue to function organizationally this way. We've no. got to figure out where that other side of this is. And uh, that's a that's a shared goal, you hope. But yeah. when, you're, when you get through to it and there's this rash of insight it's like yeah. I, I didn't think i see that and, and people all want to go out for a drink <laughs> you know that that's kind of cool well i think that's the moment when groups discover that this group of people that they always saw in a certain certain way they're stuck yeah. they don't get it um they're they're at each other's throats you know yeah. there are many narratives of course that, that we use but it can come out of our own sense of despair of not feeling heard and and the group can get stuck in a point of despair to believe that we really we really don't have the answers we need. And as yeah. a facilitator, I can come in and say, actually, I think probably the wisdom is here in the room. And for some reason, the assumptions, the mindsets we bring are blocking us from speaking that deeper truth. Mm -hmm. And then when they do, it conveys such a well, the courage of one person helps me to be courageous. Um, the fact that they've shared some vulnerability helps me to be present with my vulnerability. And, and now, all of a sudden, it's almost like the universe opened up that 
there's so much more here. There's so many opportunities for innovation. Now my curiosity struck that, well, I never knew someone in finance could get marketing. How is it that you <laughs> ask such a powerful question about my field when you don't have my background? And yeah. rather than being dismissive because you don't have my background, now I'm curious. So what do you see that I that I'm not seeing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a nice way of saying what you know, they talk about deliverables, you know, they almost have to put it in contracts, but that uh, finance person, marketing person, seeing each other in a, with fresh eyes and more appreciatively yeah. could change the dynamics in that company for weeks and months. Yeah. Just that one little moment. Yeah. And you pull together a few more of those threads and put them together. And what we call an intervention, which is not the right word, uh, when we come in to the middle of that as consultants and facilitators, uh, that's the deliverable is a feeling differently as the a moment is over, but B and C and D and F all the way to Z yeah. is all the ways after that people interact differently with each other and better. <laughs> in well, an ideal world. <laughs> I think that's the nature of transforming work that that yeah. It yes, you can introduce some new data. You can you can you can change the con content of the conversation. But that's rarely enduring, you know. It's just incorporating one more piece of data into already our data-rich environment. But if you can shift the relationship or the, the level of trust or openness or Willingness to engage with someone that I didn't think had any value to be engaged with in the first place. Then you can get into a virtuous cycle. You can get into to discoveries leading to new discoveries. And you begin to see something powerful enough to shift culture. Cult cultures are incredibly durable in organizational yeah. life, right? Sure uh, are. And, and, and unless you can create a new type of a new quality of interaction and mutual exploration. I don't think most cultures shift. I have never seen it. And and I've been at this question. I think I mentioned before we started recording that I started out mm -hmm. even before I went to school and met and studied sociology. I've always had uh, some kind of a sixth sense for culture. Yeah. <laughs> it's a curse in some instances, but mm -hmm. I feel it. I mean, I sense it before I sense anything else. And now let me put it, put it a different way. I think everyone has the same sense. Yeah. I just find it more acute. Mm -hmm. And and so it, it piques my curiosity, but also it makes me wish that some cultures would make that move that you just discussed sooner than later. Sure. And I can almost feel it when it's not likely to happen. Yeah. And a couple of points in my career, I left organizations because I, I just could see that it wasn't, it's just not going to happen here. It's right. too impacted. Yeah. And uh, I was, uh, you know, like the fiddler on a roof <laughs> in those cultures. Yeah. So, uh, but then there are others where I lived long enough in an organization to see a lot of wonderful uh, growth and development as an organization, as a team, as a department, an organization. So I, I, I'm not giving up on it. 
but it's more rare in my experience. In your experience overall, have you seen cultures move in the right direction as a result of your being in it for even a few hours or a few days or longer? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would agree with you. I've, I've several times interacted with cultures, both where I've worked as an employee and also as a consultant, where I it became pretty clear that the culture was set and and that that some of the key people, the CEO, for example, was sufficiently threatened by anything new or or new questions that that um, it was going to retrench. Mm-hmm. But I think where I've seen it open up is especially where there is a key figure, not only one, but often it's a CEO or a board chair who's got what I would call a, a kind of existential humility combined with a deep sense that they uh, a deep sense of self-confidence. Um, so humility in the sense that they can imagine they might learn something from interacting with an outside consultant, and many people don't make that assumption, um, but also a deep sense that they're secure enough in knowing that they're a wise and capable person that they can grab something and move with it. I worked with one uh, really capable woman who was who was in charge of a, a large uh, nonprofit organization, and the board was simply torn up with conflict and generational tension. People were resigning. It was really in a tough spot. We worked together first in coaching individually, and then she said, you know, I really need this support with my executive uh, committee on the board, and then I need it with my whole board, and we need to work on the makeup around you know, who's on the board and, and openness to new members. And mm-hmm. so we ended up doing a series of strategic uh, initiatives that were both board and staff. And the key theme was, this is a board that is that that doesn't make space for generative conversation. It's always fiduciary. It's always kind of policing the, the staff. Are they using the money efficiently? And they rarely step back to a strategic conversation and almost never an open generative exploration of why are we really here? What what do we care about most? Why do we have a nonprofit mission? Why do we have a mission at all? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Um, the state granted us this and the federal government granted us the status. And uh, it says that we exist for the serve X, Y, and Z. And and yet it can be lost, can't it? In those oh, in, in in those arrogant, um, yeah, uh, impactions. I guess I will use that yeah. word twice. But that, and it, how did it turn out? Well, or it's not happened, it's not over yet. But how is well, it turning out? Actually, a quite a dramatic shift happened. Um, the the sometimes a CEO either has an openness to or already has a kind of natural aptitude to pick up this stuff. Um, this was a CEO that after having done it with a couple of committees and done some practices, she just said, hey, give me some tips about how you'd structure this design. And she ran with it. Wow. And the group not only really kind of started the, the, the older members of the board that were really kind of dismissive of, of mm-hmm. the younger members and the younger members who were so frustrated they were quitting, started mm-hmm. listening to each other. They did an initiative around um, diversity, equity, inclusion from a racial perspective on the board, on the staff, and in all of their mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was unanimously embraced by, by the board. And uh, they really um, 
they ended up just taking off. They, they, they ended up experiencing some brand new growth, new initiatives, um, really quite a profound change. And a lot of it had to do with, with, with the skills of that, that CEO and our openness to try some new things. Throw uh, your credit in there too, sir, because it, I don't think it happened without the article. Well, something sparked in the interaction <laughs> in, in our in our coaching and our work. She, mm -hmm. by the way, got a, got an invitation to to join the White House staff in a very prestigious role, and thought about taking it. Ultimately, decided not to. And um, wow! And then you know ended up getting um, enormous new infusion of of um, of resources and an expanded mission, and a, you know really some exciting things happened. So I do see it happen. Um, yeah, but it happens. It happens because of a, a kind of openness, a, 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 a humility. She was she as a CEO was able to show up and not have to impress, which is quite a powerful thing. Even in even offered that prestige opportunity for greater prestige. Mm she chose not to take it that's that's an interesting kind of humility in itself it's not oh i can't possibly do that i'll fail no it's i could do it but i want to do this is that fair to say oh absolutely no it wasn't about um she ultimately said she also made decide look the status isn't what's meaningful to me yeah it's working with people who have a shared passion yeah and and her she had she had been questioning do I stay in this organization because she didn't feel that shared passion yeah. the conflict was just running everybody ragged yeah but when they went through that she kind of felt like hey I have people who know me and yeah it's a smaller scale than what the White House role would be mm -hmm. but um, we can do things here more accomplishment yeah yeah and a sense of belonging that that came along with it um, a sense of People who deeply trusted her, listened to her, tried to collaborate with her. It was very exciting as a as a consultant. Mm. Now, I suggest to you, you've just found your co-author for your book. Oh, that's a fabulous idea. Reach out to her. Say, we have a story to tell. That's a fabulous uh, idea. Why don't we collaborate even at Think of it as a slim book. I think that gets us over that gets us over the time thing. But yeah. what a story. See, that that's that puts together your story and her story, but in a larger and more important desire in this country for a point of view yeah. on leadership that uh really matters to us. And and you're on to something. And it sounds to me like she would be quite articulate as well. And the process, like when Peter and I started, he was in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, living mm -hmm. there. Uh, he had uh, come there to work at the College of St. Thomas, now University. Mm -hmm. They had a surgical accident, accident which paralyzed him for the rest of his life. So yeah. from the waist down. So he couldn't leave Minneapolis. But he, mm -hmm. but I knew here in Connecticut that I wanted to collaborate with him. Mm -hmm. And our motivation was strong. So we made it work. You mm -hmm. and she may be distance or maybe close, but, mm -hmm. and you're both going to be busy people, but what a story to tell. I want to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> At least I want a podcast with the two of you <laughs> to tell that story. <laughs> because 
Uh, I, let me put it in a momentary context. Uh, sad, very sadly, uh, one of the true most significant thinkers and activists in our field, Ed Shine, passed away on Thursday. I didn't know that. At 94. Mm-hmm. Ed and his son Peter were on one of these Zoom meetings mm. that were held by a Minnesotan named Bill Blundell. Mm-hmm. a zoom meeting the night before and i happen to be on that one it's called mm-hmm. the open source okay the open source od and so i was uh there and ed shine was there and his son peter and there was uh a, a, a nice interaction there on a case that bill and his and his volunteers had put together from ed's book one of his older books and then ed at the end of the case said a few things and then uh I said, "What? Why did you title your late your latest book, Humble Leadership?" Mm-hmm. But you said earlier in this conversation, yeah, right. And and he said, "Well, humility is situational. Doesn't mean you're humble all the time, but when humility gets it gets things to happen, when humility is a is a way of bringing even love into the picture." And Ed yeah. Shine said the word love, yeah then you can do the work but without that love and that's born by uh, uh that openness to ideas that comes with humility it just doesn't work the work doesn't work every method in this under the sun yeah. every model everything throw it out there it won't work yeah what do you think of that i mean it's really sad about ed but he lived a heck of a life yeah he did um oh i i think the the insight about love as being centered central to transformation any meaningful transformation is absolutely right i mm-hmm. i do think that we don't take the risk of coming out of our shell unless we can imagine the possibility of being lovingly received oh that's a great way to put it and, and i and i think that 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 principle is is a powerful one it, I remember hearing some people talking about the way the way preachers used to think the way, you know, we have to convince people of their sin or they'll never, uh, never want to come and, and receive forgiveness. And, mm-hmm. and someone said that was completely backwards, that what we need first is, is to be able to believe in the possibility of forgiveness, that our brokenness will be lovingly received or because we can't acknowledge our, the depth of our hurt and our brokenness until we, we we imagine that it's first we need to and and this is why a facilitator is so important a facilitator that's outside the culture with its own taboos right has to create a space where it's possible to imagine saying the unsayable stretching the boundaries of the culture by speaking some truth that is not welcome because that person is able to acknowledge it and affirm it. Yeah. And we have to imagine it's possible to be validated before we, for most of us, have the courage to put something out that is quite sensitive and vulnerable. Well, now you've made my life more complicated, Tyler Zariski, <laughs> because I have to I have to have another one of these conversations with you. There's too much more to, to be learned. You're you're very articulate, and you're putting your your uh, 
finger on the pulse, I think, of the work uh, that many, many of us value so much and want to be more valued for in the world because the world's have you ever seen more change happening wave upon wave upon wave in your life? Yeah. I haven't. Yeah. And when change is happening, what happens, it dislodges what people can are used to saying and doing with each other mm -hmm. and having a, someone come in with love offered and expected can bring it back together again and take it on to a new way. So those moments and ministers have had that. Well, I think they've had that sort done that service in life for, for eons, mm -hmm. even though it's regularized by making it on Sunday or a Wednesday night, they're still the ones that I respect are bringing an opportunity for people to be together in a space and think about nothing but love. Yeah. And however it's expressed in the literature, I mean, in the uh, Bible and everything else, but it's, it is about love. And when Ed Shine put out for, I think, his last moment of teaching mm -hmm. that he believed in humility mm -hmm. because it allows for love mm -hmm. to occur in an organization. Mm -hmm. Wow. What yeah. a moment, huh? Good for him. Well, he was speaking to something that has been taboo in the business world. Um, yeah, to, never to use the old word. To acknowledge something that's obvious, right? That that that, that respect, um, risk taking, innovation, uh, genuine trust and vulnerability is founded on love. Yeah, yeah, and and they want something far more scientific. <laughs> Give me the model that makes us more innovative. Our customers want more innovation. Bring it on. And we come in and say, well, why don't we just get people together and listen and talk with each other and perhaps some new ideas will pop up and, and we'll write them up on the whiteboard. <laughs> but it's the way it is. So, Tyler, thank you. Boy, this has been wonderful. Fun to talk with you. Can we do it again? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Have we met our assignment for getting together between meetings? I'm sure we have. I don't recall what it was, but I think so. <laughs> it was it was to get together and think about what matters to us. And I think okay, we've done there it. There we go. <laughs> I'll give you an A. What will you give me? <laughs> I will. I'll do the same. All right. It's a deal. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, oh, how could I have forgotten? Our digital book on practice as a way of being is now available. You'll find it online at www.mylibrary.world. I worked on that book after Peter passed away, and I think you will find it a unique and very, very mobile reading experience since it's wherever your screen is in hand or at hand. 